0: Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the Statler and Waldorf of Politics Podcasts shouting down Muppets in all their forms. I'm Alexandro. On today's show, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer observe dry January in January with two of the most desiccated meat-free speeches I can remember. <laughs> we chew through them, but how much can we swallow? Plus, turns out, people quite like nurses. Is the government beginning to show a little ankle to striking workers? Ministers have been meeting with unions two months too late, willing to discuss money. And are you in the market for a new dog bowl after your family drama this Christmas? Prince Harry's tell-all memoir has angered our famously sanguine tabloids. But is there more than gossip to this story? First up, it's Pen for Hire and author of Honourable Misfits, Haven't You Heard, and Escape, Marie LeConte. Hello, Marie. Hello. Rishi Sunak pledged to keep school children in maths classes until they're 18, prompting Simon Pegg to respond, and I quote, What a prick. Fuck the Tories. (laughs) Fuck them. What a tosser. (laughs) But you revealed that you do A-level algebra exam questions for fun. What made you like this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, so I, so I really, really enjoy solving equations. I think it's... So the way I would describe it is, you know, when you're you're cutting, um, you know, wrapping paper with scissors and then eventually it starts gliding and that feels, you know, about as good as heroin. I think there is a bit when you kind of solve an equation and you're just like... And, and you kind of crack it and you crack the way you're going to do it, which is exactly as satisfying. Um, no, but also I think that the, the more serious thing I'd say is that it's just logic. Like when you're not... Obviously I'm not talking about really hard math or anything, but... That more basic stuff is just logic. So I always solve equations in a way that I think would make math teachers cry, like genuinely, like, you know, when I was at school, I always got point <laughs> stopped for, because teachers were like, I don't even understand how you got the right <laughs> result. How, how did you do this? But I think that's because it's all logic that like it's not. Yeah. And, and it makes me really sad that a lot of people, I think, have missed out on that because they probably had bad teachers or didn't quite get that thing of realizing that math can actually be really fun.
0: Okay. Gavin Esler is a former host of Newsnight, author of How Britain Ends, and the
2: Chancellor of the University of Kent. Hello, Gavin. Hmm. Hello and happy 2023. Let's hope it's better than 2022. (laughs) And a happy new year to you too. The
0: US House of Representatives finally has a new speaker. After failing to command a majority an unprecedented 14 times, Republican Kevin McCarthy, described by Pod Save America as famously stupid, (laughs) eventually struck lucky on the 15th ballot why was the world
2: captivated by an essentially technical process? Well, I think the world may be captivated by a technical process which is going to cause all kinds of problems for the year ahead. Uh, My guess is that the mess in the Republican Party is at least equal to, if not worse than, the mess in the British Conservative Party over the past year, which means that there's going to be all kinds of shenanigans. And uh, what is what is extraordinary is the dearth of talent in this party. I mean, I spent my time in Washington when Newt Gingrich was leading the Republican Party. And whatever you thought of his politics, the man is extremely clever, very well read, and was very clever at uh, at maneuvering. And I suspect what's going to happen is that the Republicans are going to force a U.S. government shutdown. It seems to me that that is inevitable because they have said that they don't want spending. They, 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 uh, they, they want to uh, cut spending and Congress will not actually vote supply, in effect. That happened before in 2011, and uh, uh, Obama saw them off and won the 2012 election. Mm. And it happened with Gingrich, who's much brighter than this lot in 1995. And of course, Bill Clinton won a second term in 1996. So I think the politics of this are going to be really, really interesting. Who knew we would come to Longford Newt Gingrich, right? <laughs> there's,
0: a, there's a terrifying symmetry to ceding huge amounts of power in the capital to the same loons that tried to storm the capital on the anniversary of it happening, I think. Ian Dunt is a co host of Origin Story and the author of the upcoming How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. Hello, Ian. Hello. Over the weekend, uh, a group of Bolsonaro fanatics stormed the presidential palace in their capital. Um, where could they have gotten that idea? Yes. I, considering what we we're just talking about. So they were trying <laughs> to stop Lula from being sworn in, despite the fact that he had already been sworn in several days earlier and was not even in the city at the time. <laughs> um, will this get worse? Or, or do you think Lula has a chance to detoxify the country a little bit?
3: He hasn't got much of a chance, you know, because they're quite it goes back further than Bolsonaro, the Brazilian situation goes, I mean, at least to 2013. Do you remember the huge protests in Brazil in 2013 Mm. over corruption cost of living after some shootings, wasn't it? Right. That's right. Yeah. It was. It started with weirdly sort of train ticket prices and sort of escalated and escalated and escalated. Mm. And what followed was it's quite complex because it's ultimately the work, the workers party, Lula's party, which, you know, actually did a lot of the initial sort of fake news and divisiveness in the aftermath and the corruption in the aftermath of of that moment. And then Bolsonaro comes in like this sort of injection of just pure toxin into the body, especially over Covid, but really over the whole whole of politics, just working on deception, working on division. So they're all there. And now what you've got is this influx of external actors from the US. I mean, Steve Bannon can't shut the fuck up. About Brazil, He's mm. constantly sort of agitating. You look at Elon Musk, who I think we have to consider in a broadly similar category to these guys now, you know, making sure that lots of Brazilian accounts that have been taken off Twitter were reinstalled, saying, oh, this is, they're only taken off because of Brazilian left-wing bias. Yeah. We see exactly what it fucking S- does to democracy. Sacked a load of moderators Exactly, in Brazil, exactly. It? So now you've got those two things, the pre-existing tensions and the influx of new actors, and of course, as you see across the world, the shadow of like, putrid conspiracy theory and the damage that does to the democratic process. So look, he's got a chance, I guess, but he is himself a pretty divisive figure. And looking at the situation, you'd have to be a pretty optimistic person to think that he can truly heal it.
1: I was just going to make a very stupid point which is that i really enjoy the idea because obviously all the rioters were maybe perhaps a bit older and stuff and i like, they're all on facebook clearly like, as we know these people coordinate <laughs> on facebook so it may just be that actually the inauguration took three days to reach them <laughs> and they're, oh no no we must act now <laughs>
0: <laughs> if they were in my space they'd be rioting next week <laughs> Two men have presented their first pitch to voters in 2023, the last full year before the next general election, we think. One of them is a financial pragmatism hawk who wants the NHS and private companies to work together to solve the healthcare crisis and promises to take back control. The other is Rishi Sunak. Sunak wants to solve the country's problems with more numeracy. In a way, he is right. Better numeracy might mean more voters see just how much the last 13 years have cost us. (laughs) He has also made five pledges. He wants the nation to hold him to account if he doesn't deliver them, only he cannot say when we should expect he should should deliver them. (laughs) Keir Starmer's speech, meanwhile, was beset by sound issues, marring his trademark dulcet and mellifluously scintillating delivery. Gavin, let's start with Sunak's speech. Um, industrialist and former Siemens uh, chief, Jürgen Meyer wrote that if a CEO had presented this to his board, it would be thrown out for being insultingly basic, bland and obvious. What did you think of the
2: PM's speech? I thought it was all those things. Uh, I should I should back up and say I have a slight sympathy for Rishi Sunak. I mean... He's better than his predecessor, and he's better than the predecessor's predecessor, which isn't saying something very important. Th- those are not difficult re- bars to limbo under. It is, I accept, it's a fairly low bar. Uh, and the, we have had 12 years of shambles under the Conservatives. So, uh, But he's a decent bloke. Uh, he's not a communicator. Uh, listening to him just made me think, well, maybe we should teach more mathematics, but maybe we should also teach a little bit of public speaking as well, or mm. how not to be boring. And he did <laughs> simply say things which are not in his gift to deliver. I mean, if inflation is cut, he can play a part in that, but he can't do it. And so uh, all we really know about him, frankly, is that he has got a a, a rather strange manner. He is not a a, a great communicator. He probably does use private health care, since he wouldn't say that he uses the NHS. I can't imagine that he does. And that he um, he's, he's better than the previous lot. But mm. whether the speech, I mean, I, I, personally, I found it, I know he's the prime minister, but I found it extraordinary that so much airtime was given to the speech, given how hollow it was.
0: Mm. Um, at times, he sounded like a sort of minor bird doing vocal mimicry of bits of Tony Blair, I thought. There were some mannerisms that were just strikingly similar. Um, his first two promises, you touched on them, to halve inflation and grow the economy. Are they not antithetical? Are there ways to encourage growth in the short term that won't stimulate inflation and ways
2: to cut inflation that won't shrink the economy? I don't, I don't get those two things. Well, I don't get uh, quite what kind of conservative he is in many ways. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher used to say you can't buck the market. Governments can do certain things, but they can't do everything. And what we have seen is a total loss of confidence in the United Kingdom as a place to invest money. We have seen if you want to end the self-harm you could start with Brexit, for example, and try and ameliorate it, even if obviously politically it's impossible for him to row back in it. There's all kinds of things he can do. And to come up with the no excuses deliver seemed to me such an obvious hostage to fortune, mm. particularly since we're going to go into, I presume, a 2023 in which strikes will further dislocate the economy and further make us look like the sick man of Europe yet again, as we were in the 70s. Mm. Uh, Paul Jones of the AFS agrees with
0: you. I think he says these are either things that will happen or not happen with very little input from the government, which means that Sunak's deal is not a deal at all. It's a sort of a a child's wish (laughs) for what might transpire. Marie, the PM whose mother, and I I don't know if you know this because he keeps this quite quiet. She was a pharmacist. (gasps) Um. He has asked the public to hold him accountable if NHS waiting lists don't go down, but he's not offering any reform or extra resources to make that happen. So is this another thing that will either happen or not happen on its own?
1: I I find it quite puzzling. So after the speech, I sort of reached out to a few Conservative MPs to see what they'd made of it. And I mean, the the responses were quite weird because they were just like, well... You know, it, it was a speech of yeah. We, we agree with what he said, but but also you know, because who
0: wants longer? And no, no, it's exactly. Like, like yeah, but
1: we, we we all you know we all think that nice things are nice and bad things are bad, but you know just have to wait and see really. And I think that's kind of I don't know. Yeah, I, I just find it really odd that Rishi kind of came in, didn't do much for a while, and then you know, and then it was trailed like throughout all of December, saying oh, but it, you know he's about to do some big speeches. He will outline his vision. Like guys. January, you know, you will get introduced to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Mm. And then he gave that big speech that, again, was essentially just, well, are nice things nice and bad things bad? Mm-hmm. And that's that. So, 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 yeah, no, I have no idea what the plan is meant to be. Wasn't there that bit of briefing, which I found actually sort of weirdly heart-wrenching in December, I think, that said that Rishi had considered, or like number 10 had considered doing some big emergency speech on the state of the NHS, treating it like, an, like you know, a national emergency, um, and then decided not to. Do, I shouldn't laugh. Sorry, slightly hysterical laughter. Uh, decided not to do it because actually they didn't have any solutions to offer. <laughs> yeah. So, so there was no point in doing a speech. They there did was that nothing extraordinary spokesperson
0: um, thing where he said, "There's no plans mm. um, to to say anything on this." Yeah. No, <laughs> and so every journalist yeah. was like, what? O- "Okay, how? <laughs> yeah. I mean,
3: what's what's happening right now?" <laughs> um, I love, by the way, it's the best summary I've heard of that speeches. It was a speech. <laughs>
0: Perfect. I'm torn between Wishy Sunak, by the way, and Rishi washy um, Oh, I, think, I quite like Rishi washy I think there's there's uh, mileage to both of those. Um, is is the danger that this will create perverse incentives to deal with volume in the NHS rather than severity? If there's pressure um, coming on medics to reach for the lowest hanging fruit and push complex cases to the back of the queue, basically.
1: I mean, I'm not, I'm not convinced it will because I'm not really sure that how do you how do you enforce that at kind of national level, at like a centralised level? They're not going to send people into sort of every hospital up and down the country to say, actually, you know, again, we've got these targets, you must reach them, otherwise, I don't know. So no, I, I think at hospital level, obviously, um, people like nurses and doctors will continue to offer the standard of care that they offer right now. I, I don't really see how that's going to lead to basically anything bad or anything good. Um, that's so yeah, I'm not. Convinced anything will happen apart from things will probably get worse.
0: Mm. <laughs> Ian, he also promised to have debt falling. Most economists think there is zero chance of that happening in this parliament, and possibly not even during the next.
3: So why promise it? But I'm not sure that I mean none of these promises mean anything. And what he said,
0: what no, no, he no said,
1: nice things are nice. I think like no, he, no, was really right. well, right. he was I really mean, clear. He was really. I take
0: it back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they promised to have debt falling does
3: mean debt well, falling so i think the, the inflation one has the most meaning because it has a, a time period on it. Yeah. He said this year. Yeah. Okay? And, and he's basically saying that because basically the forecast. that's what the forecast are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Although even then, the forecast can change. We promised really not to fuck it up, right? basically. Yeah. He, he's not in charge and the forecast say that's what's going <laughs> to happen. So he's got commitment on that one. On the rest, I mean, there's no time given for growing the economy. There was no time given for, for debt falling. No time given for NHS waiting lists. The, the other solid promise was the small boats one because you can say, I promise I'm going to pass a law, which is the one thing he can do with with incredible weeds. Whether the law would work is another matter. What he said was, we will make sure our national debt is falling. So no time, no evaluation of it. I think what he'd be hoping for is that he would be able to demonstrate at some point before the next election that on some grading, you know, even a decline in the rate of increase in the debt over, if, if that happens <laughs> for 90 seconds, that will be all he fucking talks about in yeah, the yeah, election, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And then we will sit here in the studio and we'll be like, oh, it's not actually true because we're in the Guardian, we'll have an analysis and no one will fucking care. Mm. They will just pound out that soundbite.
0: His final promise, which you mentioned, to stop small boat crossings, I mean, what does it say that there was no room on his pledge card for, say, climate or energy, Mm. education, (laughs) social care, child care, science, or a single foreign policy objective, but there was room for this? Does it speak of a prevalent mood in the country or is the government misreading the mood in the country? Because it seems to me a little bit tone deaf, actually, even the people who are really, you know, hawkish about this probably wouldn't put
3: it in a top five issue. You see, I, no, I, I think that they probably would. I think their target voter does. I think wavering Tory voters over the age of 65 do. No one else. Does. So it doesn't speak to the mood in the country at all. And in fact, the mood is shifting, as we've seen on immigration mm. and, and asylum. So if you look at groups with a negative, with a net positive vote for the conservatives, you're 55 to 64s and they're massively on voters over the age of mm. 65. Mm. Now, these are the guys that he knows he wins the next election with them. He doesn't win it with 18 to 35 year olds. Okay, that is all over. So that message is directly for them. It's not about it being a real problem in the objective world because it isn't. The numbers are perfectly manageable, far lower than they are in Europe. It's not about what's morally correct. And it's not about, despite what he says about the people's priorities, it's not about what the people want at all. It is about wavering target voters. And that's the area that they think they're taking significant damage on this issue. Mm.
0: It's, it's it, I mean, it struck me. It's like the, the sort of the CEO of Apple obsessing
3: about a missing box of charges. Right. And it's, it's, it's the same when he talks about vandalism, graffiti, heroin syringes. It's like no one is saying that this is the <laughs> shit we need to worry about right now, but it does matter to the voters that they're targeting.
0: It's also so fucking 80s. Um, <laughs> Marie, let's move on to Starmer. The, the Guardian says that he's hesitant in action largely because Labour is divided in mind. Is that still the case, three years since he took over? And if it is, is it a sort of permanent state?
1: Hmm. So I'm not actually convinced the Labour Party is divided in mind, Uh, at least the Shadow Cabinet is not. So I think, you know, you'll never be able to get the parliamentary Labour Party to agree on anything I think even if you said you know would you like a unicorn they managed to disagree on that um, but I think in terms of the shadow cabinet itself and the front bench Keir Starmer has managed to build a team that does tend to agree on stuff the problem is I think is just that they're being very cautious um, like extremely cautious and at the moment obviously they're just trying to do the big picture stuff of you know what do we stand for in a slightly wooly way And I'm yeah, ironically, I'm in two minds about it because on the one hand, I'm not convinced that stuff can work on the very long run, but on the other, you know, the polls have been, um, have been really good for Labour for quite a long time now. But then, you know, isn't there then the counter to my yeah the, the counter to my own argument is is there also maybe a slight Theresa May effect of Polling well because the other side is shit. Mm. Um, You know, because we all remember Theresa May called an election because she was like, ha ha ha, I am doing great. Everyone loves me.
0: (laughs) Really, we could do this podcast just by locking Marie in the studio and letting her talk amongst amongst herself.
1: The point I was going to make is, you know, is there a risk? If I were in the Labour Party, I would worry that Labour is polling really well, not because people have realised what Keir Starmer stands for and they love him and they really want him to be in government, but just because it's been Boris and Liz and Rishi. And when it comes to the crunch at election time, actually, that poll lead is not necessarily going to hold up.
0: Mm, Yeah, I, I just wonder whether there's a tipping point at which hedging begins to look a little bit like absence of a plan, basically, where, yeah. whether what, what's true now will continue to be true all the way up to the election, or whether there comes a point when voters expect more.
1: And it's also, so I think, in slight defence of Labour, actually, I sort of get why they were staying a bit, you know, kind of not showing their entire hand, uh, even last year, because they did not know what Conservative Party they would face at the next general election. And I think that was entirely right, because mm. obviously, you know, Boris there and gone, they there and gone, now we've got Rishi. You know, I I really can't see a world in which Rishi Sunak does not lead the Conservative Party into the next general election, which means that Labour can now say, OK, we now know who the opponent Mm -hmm. opponent Mm -hmm. is. And actually, that means we can set our stall properly. So, yeah, just I I would say I sort of defend their approach until now, but they've got to get moving. um, Ian,
0: setting aside the smart, cynical or both adoption of the take back control rhetoric, What's actually being proposed
3: here? Is it, a, is it a radical constitutional shakeup? We don't know uh, because he's not giving us any real details. Um, but I rather liked all of his fuzzy directional chat because it's the same general fuzzy direction I would like things to go in. So it was two sides, right? The first side was central government. And on central government, the quote was that it would respond and would aim towards clear, measurable objectives. Mm. Now, I know that sounds preposterously low bar to set central government. But we haven't had it for years. We have not had it for years. And honestly, I've just spent the last year of my life looking at the way government operates. And again, they do not operate according to clear measurable. Measurable Mm. is the key word here. um, Objectives. The second part was devolution. More power to local communities, which pretty much every Labour leader has talked about for my entire life. Um, and he talked about employment support, transport, energy, climate change, housing, culture, blah, 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 on and on it goes. When they started getting asked about tax, Labour suddenly started getting really rather hesitant and was like, oh, no, we don't really want them to have you know, tax powers. I think you would obviously say the same thing for criminal law. Now, the trouble is with devolution, when that really works, when you have proper local power, is when you can mess around with criminal law the obvious sort of case for this is like in the U S with, reform with the, of cannabis yeah, yeah. or something, you know, one area tries it, it works. Another area tries it. You get a kind of dynamism from small scared experimentation that you can't have in a highly centralized system. And the same with tax, you know, being able to say, well, fuck it. No, we are going to tax more here. And that's, this is what we're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. And we have more trust from voters to be able to do it because we live in the local area, because we know what needs to be done in transport. So, I, 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 you know, you hear a lot about devolution. And I think when you dig into what they're saying on devolution, it looks a little bit sort of watercoloury rather than big primary yes, colours yes but but talking about democratic right participation idea. at local level rather than and a bit of fiddling around and, of and like you can you can trigger a response from government on powers that you should have and mm. it all just sounds a bit smudgy but it is the right idea he's talking the right ideas and whenever someone does that which is quite rare in politics you're like oh thank christ mm. gavin you ran for um,
0: change uk in the european parliament elections in 2019 advocating for a people's vote. Starmer's borrowing of the Leave rhetoric that take back control. Is that clever triangulation or can it come back to bite him?
2: Well, it might be clever triangulation for those voters that Ian Dunt was talking about, the ones that uh, he may have to win over, the Brexit voters who might have voted Labour and might vote Labour in the future. So it might be useful to him in some areas of England because they may say to themselves oh, wait a minute, we were told we could take back control in 2016 if we voted for Brexit. Have we got more control? No, we haven't. We haven't got any more control over anything in our lives, if if perhaps less. It won't work in Scotland. It will backfire immensely. Uh, you know, if you're the Scottish National Party and part of your part of what the argument within the SNP uh, goes as follows, uh, we are in a voluntary union of the United Kingdom, which we cannot decide to leave in the way that people decided to leave the voluntary union of the European Union. Mm. And we're held against our will after we were promised we could stay in the EU and every one of our electoral districts voted to remain. So take back control in Scotland could mean something very, very different. So I suspect it may be To be honest, I think it may be something that Labour Party are trying out and they've got another year or more before we have an election and they may decide to abandon it because I think it will work for some people, but it may not work for uh, keeping the union together, which is the basis of the Gordon Brown plan, which is the basis in some ways of Starmer's speech.
0: Ian, the the UK Statistics Authority has reprimanded the government twice last month alone for grossly misleading figures. One was the eight hundred billion um, that was attached to trade deals post Brexit, which turned out to be eighty billion, and even that's quite doubtful. The 800 other one billion, by the way, is like Austin Powers. <laughs> numbers, I know. Right? I like, know. Right? It just sounds. <laughs> And and the other one was the 28 billion that they attached to giving um, NHS workers a pay rise. That again, the statistics authority said, don't say that; it's mm-hmm. just not true. So whatever happens, Sunak will claim he's delivered all five things. We <laughs> yeah, we know yeah. that ahead of time.
3: Do promises and pledges matter anymore at all? I mean, he's mostly doing it for PR reasons rather than actually securing something. You know, it's almost like I'd go further than this. You know, the ones that really worry me. It's like when Sunak sits there and during a speech, he promised, I think it was... 7,000 new hospital beds and 20,000 police officers. Now, politicians of all parties fucking love doing this. And every time they come up with a promise with a very, very round number, you know that, that what is being proposed is not a sensible thing to propose. Like, yeah. there, is no, there is no analysis of policing and crime in this country that happened to come up with a number, 20,000 <laughs> no, police. No. You know, it's just basically we need a big round number, so let's do that. This is just a stupid thing to want. Like, if you really care about protecting people from crime, you get into the roots of the thing and you look at the various Causes, lots of which are quite complex and will not bow down to just a very easy to say number. So every time they're saying those pledges, you know that not only are they probably going to make up the numbers to pretend that they hit something that they didn't do, but that they're not having a sensible, mature, serious look at the problem that they came to be addressing.
0: Next up, after months of government saying our door is open only for Dusty Bin to be revealed as the prize behind it, since they refused any meaningful engagement on money, on Monday we suddenly experienced a union engagement frenzy. Meetings were hastily arranged between most relevant ministers and unions within their brief. None of the meetings provided a resolution or arguably even progress. All the strikes that had been announced looked set to go ahead. All unions have described the meetings as disappointing. But ministers are now openly talking to unions about wages and the rhetoric has softened noticeably. Marie, this is a change of tone, not policy. But a change of tone is often the harbinger of a change of policy. What do you think is going on here? Is this PR or the beginnings of a climb down?
1: Well, I mean, so I think um, I would actually like to issue a mea culpa because I think I was unfair about the government earlier when I said that all they stood for was are um, nice thing nice and bad things bad. I think the third tenet, um, you know, this number 10 is... As we all know, if you ignore a problem, it goes away on its own. <laughs> um, and 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 I do kind of feel like that. That's what they tried to do over the strikes. Um, and I, I don't even really know. Like this is not me having intel. I'm just kind of guessing. But maybe thinking the public would turn on the strikers eventually. Which again, nurses after a pandemic, mental anyway. But but yes, I I, I can't really think of any other explanation as to why they decided to basically again ignore the problem, then see that it did not go away on its own, and are now like oh oh, oh yes, I suppose we can negotiate. So there may be a change in policy, but I don't really see a world in which the Treasury... I, I think we're going through that traditional stage at the moment of, ooh, so we, we would love to help, but the big boys at the Treasury will mm. beat us up if mm. we spend even one yes. pound. So I think that we've, we're going to have, I'm guessing, a couple more days, a couple more weeks of that, and then maybe something will happen. But again, I yeah,
0: who knows? At the same time, they're threatening to change the law to make strikes more difficult which seems to me to have effectively taken a bunch of unions all concerned with practical stuff specific to their members and antagonised them sort of en masse and in principle. Um, some are now whispering the words general strike. What, what would that look like?
1: That would be quite hard to know, because that's not been attempted, obviously, for a very long time. And solidarity strikes are also banned in Britain, thanks to one Margaret Thatcher. Um, So there could not be a case of actually a general strike of, you know, starting with solidarity strikes and kind of, you know, building up and up from that. So I I don't really know what to make of it, because I, I do find it really interesting how little outrage there is over, you know, sort of everything at the moment in terms of, you know, healthcare the cost of living crisis, et cetera, there's not quite that kind of like swell of anger, which one might um, expect. And I don't know if it's because people are knackered, uh, especially coming out of the pandemic, or like someone was making the point there may not be many marches at the moment because it's the winter, mm. uh, et cetera. Mm. So I, genuinely, I have no idea, but I will be interested to see what happens. Like generally, I know that's going to sound glib, but once it gets warmer. Um, And once things, I I, I wouldn't be surprising, you know, even just massive protests um, over the summer. It's just quite
0: strange to me. Like, for instance, looking at railways, looking at the NHS, these are services that we know run in part on goodwill, right? They run by people accepting loads of overtime and double shifts and all of that stuff, Mm. and they could they would not even have to strike. If, if like, all the unions decide that their members are going to work to rule, which they can do under the rules, mm. I mean, that would be enough, it seems to me, to cause significant disruption.
1: Because yeah, well, no, I feel like that happened with, I can't remember which trend franchise did that. Um, but, yeah, that was definitely all like, I was at the Tube. I can remember like, that there was definitely a transport thing of saying, actually, it's not even a strike, it's just people doing the work they're paid to do, which is why you will not get home today. Bye! Yeah. <laughs>
0: Ian, uh, Starmer questioned whether the PM had a strategy at all on this. He said, and and I think it's interesting that Starmer was better in the Q&A that followed the speech, I thought. So he said, will he go in a room in a few weeks to reach an agreement he could have reached months ago before the strikes, before all that distress for people, or slug it out month after month in a war with nurses? Did the government go into this without an exit strategy?
3: Is there an exit strategy? I think they did go into it with that. I think there was a sort of. A. I mean, there were. And I think Mary's exactly right to talk about the Treasury and all this, because you can just imagine the fucking noises the Treasury will be making at the moment. This is part of the parcel of what is terribly wrong with that department and almost constantly is. And the second part is that I think that they thought this was one that they could land on Labour and Labour would take as much possibly more damage than the government would just because everyone's like union paymasters. It sort of rolls off the tongue, right? But actually that hasn't really happened. And and I'm kind of as surprised as they are. Like, uh, to be honest, if you had asked me six months ago, would support for the strikes hold up at this point, at this level, I would have predicted that no, it wouldn't. Mm. And I think you get that same sense of surprise from Starmer and I think you get it from Sunak of just the sense of like, this isn't how it's supposed to fucking go. Remember what it used to be like with Bob Yeah, Crump? yeah, yeah. You know, it was just like eventually they'll turn. I think part of that is is the, the role that nurses have had as the figureheads and maybe coming off austerity and COVID, there's more of a public sense of, hang on, my life is like their life. But for whatever it is, it is different. And so yes, I think the government went into it really without much of a plan, except assuming that the usual dynamics would prevail, and the usual dynamics have not prevailed. Because it's getting to the point now, because of the time that has passed,
0: that there is really no successful exit strategy. If they do a deal, they look like they could have done that two months, three months ago. And if they don't do a deal, then we continue to be in this situation. The polling has remained stubborn in ascribing blame for the strikes to the government and expressing solidarity with workers. But also, on general voting intention, the Sunak bounce is just fizzling away, and the Labour lead is recovering to what it was in early November. He reduced it from 27 points to 22 in his first 10 days. Then there was a bit of up and down, and it's now back to 22 points. Mm-hmm. Has the Thatcherite Gamble to sort of go to war with the unions backfired, basically? Do, is that now a fixed outcome?
3: I don't think it goes that way. I think it's that, um, well, the first thing to say is, is that Sunak is quite shit, actually. As Gavin was saying earlier, his presentational manner is actually oddly quite similar to Liz Truss's, which is that he speaks as if he's talking to children. It's an incredibly patronizing manner. It's quite, really quite infuriating to watch him. And that, by the way, I don't think that David, David Cameron was like a used car salesman, but he didn't talk to you like you were a child. And Gordon Brown and, and Tony Blair certainly didn't. You know, so suddenly he, he's actually, he's not just bland and pointless. He's actually quite an irritating man to, to listen to, especially when he's talking pure vacuity. So you've got this presentational thing where Starmer is obviously not a presentational firepower, but then it doesn't really matter because the other guy's actually worse presentationally. So then the standard dynamics just take over. And the standard dynamics are, this is a government that's been in charge for 13 years. They've accomplished seemingly absolutely fine Nothing. And now the country is falling apart. So that seems to me like the beginning and the end of the explanation of why the polling is the way that it is. Mm. Gavin, going back to Sunak's pledges, two of them hinge directly on NHS
0: staff and border staff civil servants, not striking. And arguably, the three economic pledges also depend on activity not being hobbled by strikes. So when the PM says he will either deliver or he won't, no excuses, has he handed workers a huge negotiating chip? I mean, if they stay out on strike, they can basically ensure he doesn't deliver on his key
2: five pledges. Uh, Well, yes, he has uh, handed uh, workers precisely that. There, there, There is no strategy. There is absolutely no strategy, and there has not been right through the Johnson years either. There's what can we do for tomorrow morning's headlines? Mm. That's mm. the strategy. And so therefore, we got Boris Johnson talking about my hobbies, painting buses, which hit the headlines because we all thought he'd gone bonkers, um, uh, toy buses. So there is no strategy. And secondly, the union leaders, this lot, are very good communicators. They mm-hmm. speak human. Um, uh, the, the nurses' leaders absolutely speak human, and the nurses and others, other healthcare workers that are interviewed, the ambulance staff and so on, speak the way you would like to be spoken to if you found yourself collapsed on a pavement or dragged into hospital because you were, you were, you were very ill. So there's a great difference in communications between people that we don't trust that we don't believe. Mm. And they don't really seem to know what their plan is. So uh, I think Sunak has handed, uh, he, well, first of all, he's picked the wrong fight with the wrong people. And he has suggested that he will have to be judged on it. And we already judge him. And I, I think one other thing is, most of us, perhaps in the time of the miners' strike, didn't know any miners. But we do know nurses, we do know doctors, we That's do know point. junior doctors, or we do know somebody who's been sick, barristers, of civil servants, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there are human beings who also speak human. So I think this government is on a loser here, and how they're going to get out of it, I have no idea. Because Ian is absolutely right; the Treasury will be saying all the time, "We can't afford it," whatever it is. It's
0: interesting that that you mention that because I did want to ask you. You've been on the beat a long time. And and these latest strikes have been notable, I think, for excellent media strategy by unions, sort of executed in an incredibly savvy way. How central to this battle has the absence of a sort of controversial lightning rod figure like McCluskey or going further back, Scargill, how, how important has that
2: been? I think it has been really important, actually. I mean... Uh... I think Mick Lynch uh, has been able to communicate the the workers' position on the railways uh, brilliantly. And he takes questions and he actually answers them. Now, you may disagree with him. You may think they shouldn't strike. You may think all sorts of things. But compared to a government minister saying, what I can tell you is... (laughs) <laughs> As an excuse for not answering the question, what I can tell you is <laughs> I go fishing at weekends. Well, well done, you know. Uh, whereas, uh, and, and Mick Lynch is actually quite funny. Now, it's not just him. I think I, I say I think the nurses. Yes,
0: do this, uh, across spots. the and board, amazing. I haven't
2: seen a bad performer on yeah. this. To be honest, because I don't think they're. I think in a way they're not performing, are they? They genuinely believe what they are saying and mm. are trying to represent their workers. Whereas we have got a gun, a, a bunch of. Relatively untalented people who have been shunted into various jobs in various ministries, where they don't particularly believe what they're saying, but they've been decided to say it anyway, and that comes through with Sunak as well. Unfortunately, I think.
0: Yes, Stephen Barclay versus the nurses' union is a is a bet I'd like to take. Um, Marie, all unions are also reporting really high numbers joining and a boost to their membership. Might these disputes actually be a, a really good thing for? Um, unionism.
1: Oh, yes, no, absolutely. And I think with my quite wonkish hat on, there's been so much discussion over the past like, 10, 15 years, um, on the left, especially, on, you know, the future of work and also the future of unionism, because Unionism, because the way we work changed and the, you know what we expect, I think, from our working lives is changing massively. And also what we may expect from the people fighting in our corner is changing massively. So talking about the kind of unions who, especially at the beginning, were not very good at dealing with gig economy workers, etc. So, so, you know, I think that that's kind of been a question that's very much been really prominent again on the left for quite a long time now. We've actually, you know, what, what is the role for unions here? How do we reinvent them? Mm. How, you know, what do we do? And so actually it, it is really interesting to see that we're now back to, oh, no, fine, protecting the workers. Actually, that that yeah. works. Fine, fine. <laughs> Maybe we do not need the kind of that level of intellectual masturbation for that long. That like, is just... The yeah.
0: strength in numbers. Just, yeah. It's just as simple. Wages
1: way. go up, workers go wee.
0: Yeah. Ian, it's another um, great slogan. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sunak was also very tight-lipped on his use of a pri- private GP in an interview over the weekend mm. uh, and was pressed. And I thought that the result was quite embarrassing. Is it relevant? Uh, I, I found myself in disagreement with, uh, with Monday's start your week, which, which I guess is a sign of good health in an organization um, who thinks this is
3: all a storm in a teacup. What do you think? It sort of has to be read. I'm a bit torn. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting private health care. I have private medical insurance. And the reason I have that is because I had some pretty fucking scary times on the NHS and thought, I don't want to be on the line that way for, for this stuff coming forward. So I don't think that there's anything morally wrong in doing it. I do think that if you're if you're in politics, it has to be a pertinent question whether you were personally affected. I guess it goes into that same pot that
0: that has to do with the distance of the person making the decision from the life of the person about whom the decision is Made and the more distance you add into that, you know, borrowing a, a worker's Kia to pretend fill it, and then not mm-hmm. knowing how to use a a contactless card and buying five different loaves for your house because everyone likes a sort of different kind of bread, and mm-hmm. all of that just makes it feel like the person making the decisions about your life has
3: no conception of what your life is like that's right and you send your kids to private school so you know you're kind of not really affected by the say if you live in a gated community you have a different sense of what security and crime is like you know to what it would be like for other people the more and more you stack that stuff up there's the a the perception part but then also there is kind of the reality part that you just don't have the experience you don't have the conversations and it starts to i think come across in, in, in the manner as well as the priorities
1: Oh, no, for once, actually coming in uh, with a serious point. No, so I wonder as well, because I think, so I I normally am a bit of a defender of MPs on that stuff, because actually they interact with many, many more normal people than you and I do. However, I think Rishi Sunag, the thing is, I wonder, because he's been incredibly successful, right, in Parliament, that he joined blinked um, and then joined the front bench, became a minister, became chancellor, etc so mm. he's not actually had those years and years of being a constituency MP and seeing stuff and actually so I'm not sure that link was ever there because obviously he had his rich wife and then yeah, parliament then immediately minister or more or less um, so yeah, so there's not even that that saving grace yeah. of having had to do a million surgeries and knowing what people go through.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's absolutely true, you know, I remember speaking to someone about prisons and they were like, the thing is most MPs have prisons in their constituency, so they've visited prisons. Most members of the public have never been in a prison, you know, to save their fucking life. But MPs have. The thing is, you're right. As soon as you, as soon as you're on the front bench and not in your constituency, that becomes less of less of a thing. Gavin, mm-hmm. one last question,
0: just to explore the counterpoint. If the pandemic taught us anything, it was that people adjust to circumstances. Is there a danger for unions that the country just gets used to this new normal of, of everyone striking? and they end up losing bargaining power over time is is now their sort of golden
2: hour to make a deal well you, you may be right about that i think the the real danger is that when a public service is eroded and eroded and eroded and for instance when the railways were in public ownership successive governments decided not to put money into them because if they were if the choice was to put money into schools or healthcare, they would do that rather than the railways. British Rail became a joke and it was privatized. What is happening in the health service is that many of us are turning away who can are turning away from the national health service because there are other options if you've got money. And the the worse it gets, the worse it gets. So there is a there, it seems to me, an existential problem for the NHS. We all are very familiar with the NHS problems. One of them is lack of money. The second one is that the Lansley reforms from 2012 are a disaster of, you know, organizational spaghetti. Uh, And they're very, very difficult to unpick. So that, to me, seems to be the danger, that the longer this goes on, it becomes the normal that you can't see your GP, so you pay whatever it is to go and see someone privately. And the more people do that, and the more they opt out, the worse the service becomes.
0: Now, Prince Harry has been doing interviews ahead of the release of his autobiography, the pithily titled Spare. The book contains a lot of frank admissions, including that he had a frostbitten penis at William and Kate's wedding, and an alternative
3: lyric, I think, for "Merry Christmas to You," Ian. <laughs> there, there is a certain. I'm going to count the number of very prominent public figures about whose penis you have referred to over the course of this episode. <laughs> oh, oh, just this episode. I was, I was going to say you were
0: going to have a <laughs> you're going to have a jo- job on your hands if you went all the
1: podcasts.
0: Um, (laughs) There is a certain toxicity inherent to a tell-all autobiography. I mean, something juicy is needed to sell your story. And every autobiography is essentially an invasion of privacy for the people in the author's life. So why does our media love former page three models dumping on ex-husbands, but clutches it it it's pearls on this. That that's the aspect that's interested me. None of the sort of royal drama. But why we have a different expectation of privacy and decorum from celebrities
3: of status? But it's such a big drop. Because I don't think it's not that he's a celebrity of status, it's that he was connected to the royal family. Right? I mean yeah. he was the fucking prince. And on that basis to go from the Queen, you know, where privacy and decorum, you know, you you wouldn't have any idea what she thought about anything, let alone what had happened, to suddenly, so quickly after her death, which is a coincidence, but nevertheless, having this of very detailed conversations about exactly which royal was leaking to which newspaper who was saying what, that gap between those two visions of the royal family is quite severe. And the second part of that is, you know, he is now persona non grata and is the absolute target enemy of most of the press and certainly Mm. all of the tabloid press, I think. So you can look at it. Someone on Twitter put up an example of of how he was treated when he was in the Afghan war and said that he had killed people and how he was being treated now over pretty much exactly the same comments. I mean, there's a slight difference in that he, he put the number. But, you know, of course, it was like light and day. And so it's not on an objective appraisal of what's being said. It's on the basis of who is saying it.
2: Hmm.
3: I mean my I guess my thesis would be that it's it's Elizabeth II that was
0: the aberration in that that <laughs> the royal story has been a salacious sort of really quite colourful soap opera for many centuries. Uh, and it's Elizabeth II that was different in that respect by being quite, you know, because what did we have just before? We had a brother deciding to marry a divorced person and abdicate Mm. the three. You know, all of that seems to me to be in the same ballpark. as But she's she's always known. Mm. For the vast majority of us, she's always known. Gavin, much of the criticism recently has focused on Harry's Drug use, and also the mention in his book of his sort of kill tally in Afghanistan, are either of those things a rich, damaged young person taking drugs, or the fact that soldiers in wars kill enemy soldiers? Are, are these in any way revelations? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't understand. Uh, Alex,
2: Alex, the Pope is Catholic. <laughs> there is no question about that. Uh, bearers do defecate in the woods. Uh, Teenage boys of certain means and rather aimless, presumably, quite often take drugs. I really, frankly, my dear, I don't
0: give a damn. I I, I completely understand that, So, which is why this is a sort of goggle box version. I'm not fascinated by the thing. (laughs) I'm fascinated by people watching the thing and going, oh, my goodness, you know, this rich kid (laughs) took
2: coke. But isn't, isn't that the point? And to go back to your point about the, about Queen Elizabeth II, our head of state is a monarch. Our head of state is not the royal family with all the bits and uh, the hangers on and so on. And that is very, very odd to me as someone who finds it almost impossible to read any of this nonsense, mm. to take seriously <laughs> the journalistic commentary from people who've never met Prince Harry. I've never met him. I don't know anything about him. And I'm well aware that this is his autobiography, but I have to say, I was trying to think of which autobiographies of anybody I've ever read, and the last one I think was Barack Obama, who did stuff, you know, Mm. who was quite interesting, (laughs) and who also took drugs, young guy, also talked about his penis, and also talked about it. But to read. The Come
0: on, man.
1: This is, this, is this is one for Ian. This is
2: one for Ian. But to read the commentary from journalists and royal correspondents about this, I just, my heart aches, I'm sorry. I just can't bear it. Marie, he's he said he wants to
0: repair family relations. Are these the actions of someone who wants to bury the hatchet? Is a, f- <laughs> is a frank conversation actually a prerequisite to healing rifts? Or can repression work just as well, if not better.
1: I mean, that that genuinely feels at the beginning of a, another hour-long
3: yes.
0: podcast on
1: psychotherapy. Um, God, I mean, it, God, it depends on so many things. That I, I, I mean, clearly, I think his thing is that he feels he was incredibly hurt by his family and he was gaslit, etc. So I'm guessing, if I were to try and get into his head, that he's kind of nearly trying to level the playing field of saying, actually, you know, you made me have this horrible time for a very long time. I'm putting all this up in the open so we can start afresh. However, I'm not entirely convinced that's how human relationships work. I don't, you know, I respect the idea. And I think we've all had people in our life at a time or another. We've gone, well, if I tell them everything, then, you know, again, we can start afresh. And has that ever worked? I'm not convinced. So I think that's what he thinks he's doing. I'm not convinced that's the best way of going about it. Mm. It's about
3: time this podcast came out for a good, healthy dose of English emotional repression. <laughs> yes. This is what we need. Many yes. relationships have well. gone yes. just fine as long as I everyone say fucking thoughts about shit. Yes.
0: <laughs> Ian, in another way, this is a story of very ordinary politics, cruelty, bullying, inherent in many family relationships. Not, <laughs> my, not mine, particularly. <laughs> okay. But you see a lot of people going, oh, you know, I know brothers who have decked each other. Is there a constitutional danger in demystifying the royal family to this extent, precisely at a time when people are starting to think, what are they actually for? Do we
3: need them? I don't know if people are thinking that way right now. I mean, I, I haven't, I, my, my Republican friends, pretty much all my friends have been telling me that for decades now, and it never <laughs> seems to materialize um, because of people like you. Yeah, because of, yes, well, largely, yes, because of people like me, um, so, look, I, I think it's probably a bit safer now than where it was when they did um, the American interview where they were talking about racism, because he's starting to play down the racism stuff now. And he's talking in a very different way with sort of this sort of anti-press mm-hmm. campaign of leaking and, that you know, who's going to hold the press to account and, and some more personal stuff. Now, that to me is crucial because the, the function of the monarchy is PR. That is. what it is. It's supposed to be telling a national story and reflecting the national story. And it cannot do that if it gets sucked into a culture war division. So as soon as it became about racism you could see the split go right along the traditional Mm. culture war scene right and then you're like that shit is existential because that means actually you cannot reflect the country you know you if the royal family went into the sort of right-wing or conservative reactionary side of that cultural assessment that's an existential threat potentially if it grew but it has it stopped growing Actually, that debate, it's moved it away. It's right? moved it away. He's, he's not on the racism stuff. He's on the press stuff, which is just a sort of wiffle waffle about who, you know, who watches the Watchmen and all of that kind of stuff. We've heard that shit before from Hugh Grant. Mm-hmm. And now we're hearing it from him. Right. I mean, fine. But that that seems to be far less dangerous to the royal family in the long term than any of the stuff that was being talked about last year. Mm. Gavin, the flip
0: side of that, the royal family. Like I said, it has been Britain's national soap opera for centuries. Does the public secretly love the theatre? Does this sort of thing actually help the monarchy by taking the place of a real constitutional debate?
2: Yes, it absolutely does. Uh, But two observations on that. One is that uh, the week before Princess Diana died, there were all kinds of salacious stories about her love life in the, the British newspapers. The week after Diana died, there was national mourning. There were people. In fact, I talked to some, one of whom said, said to me, um, I felt more for Diana's death than I did for the death of my mother, which is such a weird oh, thing to say. Jesus but Christ. so there is a section of the public that loves loves all this. And the second part of it is, you know, when we talk about the constitutional implications of this, I think if you asked anybody in in the street in Britain what what is meant by the crown in Parliament or the royal prerogative, they would their eyes would either glaze over or they wouldn't have a clue. Uh, people like the idea, I think of having a figurehead, a national figurehead that we don't elect, um, who is somehow in a slightly different plane. Mm-hmm. And we're not governed by, you know, the head of state is the monarch, it's not the royal family. So to that extent, some members of it and how they behave can be interesting without being threatening or directly mm-hmm. relevant. So if Harry does some crazy things, he's the crazy member of the family or alternatively he's the guy that you can relate to because he's in a, a marriage with this lovely woman that he's clearly fallen in love with and so on uh, you know so it's a human story that we can all relate to and it's a lot more interesting than the constitutional role of the monarch which actually when you strip away a lot of the uh, the ceremony and the and the, and the dressing up is not actually all that exacting. And most people don't understand it anyway. <laughs> Marie, finally, uh, you hinted at this
0: earlier, this this sort of strategy to reveal everything so that the, the press in this country holds no power over him anymore. It, it is part of the rage of the tabloid press down to the fact that he is circumventing them and telling the story in his terms, rather than you know, I mean, everyone seems to be shocked that, you know, he took drugs and revealed it in a autobiography. If they had uncovered it, it would be a front page splash for days and days and days.
1: Well, so isn't it, I suppose, that it was a very well-oiled relationship between the royal family and the British press, especially from... So I'd really recommend, actually, I think it's Mailmen uh, by Adrian Addison, which has some tremendous anecdotes. What was it? So I think, was it Charles and Diana went on their honeymoon um and the hacks found out where it was some like really random remote island and so managed to fly there all separately obviously they all trying to get the scoop um and then the first person who found them managed to take some pictures and send them via some technology i'm too young to know about Mm. and i'm very sorry and then cut off all the wires so like the other snappers the other photographers could not do the same for their own newspaper so etc so you know it was all kind of like there was always that kind of game i think on fleet street of covering the royals and being a bit naughty and seeing what you can get away with but also behind the scenes you know clearly having those arrangements and those leaks and briefings etc so i think it's mostly that again yeah sort of anger as well hang on you know we had a thing going and you've just decided to do your own thing
0: on that, I would also highly recommend Amul Rajan's excellent documentary, The Princes and the Press, which is currently an iPlayer, where he explores this notion that it was William initially that was the no-good, lazy, incompetent prince, and Harry was the good one doing his duty. And that relationship flipped around the time of the phone hacking, actually, <laughs> around the time that William dropped his lawsuit against the Papers and Harry persisted with his. Mm-hmm. It, that that relationship flipped completely. I would ad- advise um, listeners interested in those mechanics to watch that. <laughs>
3: And me,
2: Angela Barnes.
3: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Finally, I thought I was mistaken, but we're just a week away from Blue Monday the day that makes the Smiths seem like peppy optimists, the day experts think is the most grim of the whole year, although the 23rd of June may be a close second. So it's more important than ever for our panellists to tell us their escape routes from the cynicism of politics. Marie.
1: Oh, um, I am not going to be very original because I'm going to say I went to watch Corsage um, at the cinema the other day and it's just really, really good. Like, it's an absolutely tremendous movie about this Austrian princess uh, who turns 40 and goes a bit mental is, I think, the short version of it. But the costumes are incredible. The soundtrack is beautiful. Um, no, it's just a really, really good movie.
2: Mm, sounds good. I've made a note. Gavin, how about you? Yeah, well, I've been cheering up with the movie as well. I think there's a, there's a brilliant... Uh, Ryan Gosling movie, The Gray Man. It's uh, very easy to watch. There's a lot of smashing things up, shooting people up, and 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 falling about, and and damage, and so on. It's got a very great plot. It's very amusing and it's a very nice way of spending two hours. And it's a heck of a lot better than watching the rerun of Top Gun and the dreary (laughs) maverick nonsense again. Okay. That was really
3: underrated, that film. I had a really fucking good time watching The Grey Man.
0: I
2: was just like, oh, this is is just great. Like,
0: why, why isn't it getting more love? I agree. I had exactly the same experience. So maybe that's a nice thing to go into it expecting not many things. How about you, Ian? Aliens, Phalanx.
3: I don't usually read books about movies. You yeah, I know. Just Fucking the way is looking at so me. It's right just now. the way
1: you pause. There's a bit like, I don't usually I don't read. Usually read. <laughs> but this one, you know, the, the words were real good. Just really enjoyed those words.
0: The whole sentences. Yeah. <laughs> I got them all in. I got them all in. It's, it's like little Hicks being approached in a sort of Midwestern <laughs> cafe by someone yeah. that goes, We got ourselves a
3: reader. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So it's quite rare. I mean, it just, it's quite rare that I come across something where I'm like, no, I'm just not getting enough of that through the film. And now I now need the rest of the stuff. But with Aliens, I do have it. I basically have... I cannot consume enough of that shit. So I've gone through the comics and I've gone through some of the books, which is something that I never thought I would fucking do for any, for any film, really. And almost all of them are just utter tosh. It's basically like mm. Wayland Utani is going to see if they can weaponize the aliens. Oh, but it's all gone wrong and they've run out of control. And everyone's just like, fuck me, not this again. But Aliens Phalanx is a book set in this kind of medieval kind of world with these fortresses and the aliens are attacked. It's basically Game of Thrones meets aliens. Okay. 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 Mm-hmm. Which is a yeah, I'm sold. smarmy, I'm exactly, sold. but I'm it's sold. pretty fucking good. Um, so I've
0: been watching The Rig on Amazon Prime. Uh-huh. Um, really interesting concept, incredible amount of talent in there. Um, and I've kept watching it because it's just astonishing how awful it is. Um, considering the amount of talent and money that's gone in it.
3: What it, kind of a recommendation
0: I, is no, this? No, seriously, I watch it agog at how bad the <laughs> dialogue at the end is. It, 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 it is genuinely at times like Amdram people improvising <clears throat> terrible stuff. Um, and so to counteract that, I'm also re-watching all of Sherlock. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God What Now. <laughs> Since you're doing Dry January, I know you... Why don't you spend that pint money on something that's good for the body and the soul? Back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month for added content like our Thursday Extra and our Monday mini-cast Oh God What Else, as well as exclusive bonuses like merchandise and early access to live show tickets. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to some of our lovely,
2: lovely backers. (laughs) Hello from me too Ruth Shafto Jonathan Stephen Dodds Aaron John Hymas James Ezard Genevieve McCracken and Sarah Ballard
1: Hello Happy New Year and thanks to Kay Meldon Luke Scanlon Jill Shepherd, Christopher Taylor-Davies Aaron Duddy Alison Guthrie Justin Cook and Richard Rackham
3: And many thanks from me and best wishes for 2023 to Thomas Bowden Joanna Hoare Kathy Young Henry Barnes, Desmond Brown, Sarah Reese, Tim Riley, Rick Ogden. And
0: finally, a huge thanks and best wishes from me to Peter Douglas, Paul Harris, Kieran Garland, Lauren Worry, Andrea Leppard, Catherine Byrne, Chris Chapar, Steve Granger. Thank you for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode.
2: Oh, God, what now? It was presented by Alexandre with Marie Leconte, Gavin Esler, and Dund. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. With a production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Rees. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? Is a Podmasters production.